I'm Dan Lukasik. Today's guest is Mary Cregan, author of the book, The Scar, A Personal History of Depression and Recovery. Mary received her PhD from Columbia University and is a lecturer in English literature at Barnard College in New York City, where she lives with her husband. Welcome to the show, Mary. Thank you, Dan. Yeah. Mary, first out of the gate, I, I mentioned to you that what jumped out at me and how I found your book was the title, uh, actually. Uh, where did the title of the book come from, or how did you come up with the title? The title is the origin of the story, really, is the fact that I have a scar from a suicide attempt, which I made in this very, very intense depressive episode that followed the death of my first child. And it was when I discovered that I had major depression. Um, and I became quite suicidal and I made a suicide attempt and I have a scar from that. And so in a sense, this story that I tell in the book is going back to that scar, which of course mm -hmm. is with me always and um, is a kind of memory on my body of this experience. And through the scar, I try and tell the story of my depression and this sort of larger history of depression and Mary, um, leading, that I came leading, to learn about. And leading up to that time when uh, you had the suicide attempt, can you lead us up to that time? You know, you mentioned the, the passing of your daughter. Uh, take us back to that time and w what happened? Um, I was a young, I was 27 when I was pregnant for the first time and I was married to um, my, high, my college boyfriend and he was a few years older than I was. And we had, um, I was working in publishing in New York City when I left college. I had a job in publishing and, and he was working in New York as well. And we had just moved because he wanted to live closer to places. He just wanted to get out of the city and we had just moved up to uh, Westchester County to a, a house with some bedrooms and an outdoor space thinking that we could have a little more room for having a child. And um, the death of my daughter was completely surprising. I mean, I had a very easy full-term pregnancy. I went into labor on my due date. It seemed as though everything was going perfectly. And then um, after she was born, it was clear that she was not very responsive. Her APGAR score was low. And over the next, say, day and a half, um, they did a variety of tests and ended up taking her up to Mount Sinai for an echocardiogram, which showed that she had a very terrible heart defect um, a condition called hypoplastic left heart, which means that your heart is not developed on one side. And it was in 1983, the end of 1983, when this was a, basically a death sentence. She didn't um, live for more than a few hours after we received this diagnosis. So I was completely... I mean, so shocked. We were both really shocked. 
But what happened went next was, of course, we went home to this house that we had just moved into with no baby, and I became very depressed. Mm-hmm. Um, but because I didn't really know what depression was, nor did anyone else around me, I did not come from a therapeutic um, environment. Well, that's that's the wrong way of putting it. I didn't come from people who had had anything to do with psychiatrists or therapists. And we just didn't know what was going on, where we just thought this was a a situation of grief. And Mary, can you tell us, uh, at the time, you said you came home and uh, you became depressed. Uh, What what were the symptoms or what do you recall about uh, that time that led led you to believe that you were depressed. Can you describe it to us? Um, I became, well, I was trying to figure out how I could get a new job because I felt like I was very unhappy and I read something to, to kind of, to focus on, to kind of lighten my energies. And I was trying to find how I could get a new job while also being on a short maternity leave from the job I was still holding. And um, I just kept not being able to cling to anything that felt meaningful. I suppose that what I was suffering from was a state of profound meaninglessness Mm -hmm. and not knowing how to kind of hold on to the future. I felt like the future was so completely unknown. I was trying to grasp something, but I couldn't. And a couple of months after the death of my daughter, I woke up one morning and said to my husband that it would be better if I were dead. And mm. then then it was suddenly clear that we had a serious problem. And he consulted his father, who put us in touch with a psychiatrist, and I started seeing the psychiatrist, you know, was very, that in, very that was That was privately before the hospitalization, Mary? Yeah, that was a couple of weeks. Yeah. I would say <clears throat> maybe a couple, maybe two or three weeks before the hospitalization. And how were and they trying to me, treat you at that time? He, it was therapy. And so I would be going to, I went back to work to my job. And I would come home on the train and then go and see the psychiatrist in the evening. And um, I think that it was every evening, Monday through Friday. And he was also, he put me on, um, I think it was a tricyclic antidepressant Mm -hmm. and sort of gradually increasing the dose. But I think that it was too late. Um, I was very, very suicidal. And I was going to work and I was trying to focus and, but I, it just wasn't turning things around quickly enough. And then one day I came home from work and cut my wrists and ended up in the hospital. So that was how I arrived in the hospital with a suicide attempt. Um, And I, I think that what I'm trying to talk about here, as grim as it sounds, is a complete loss of connection to the world. Yes. Mm-hmm. And when you were in the hospital, 
Um, how long were you in the hospital for, by the way, Mary? I was in the hospital for three months. Um, let me go for... back. Maybe I can read a little bit about that yeah. period where I describe um, what it felt like in those days before I entered the hospital. Um so I had tried a variety of things. I tried volunteering at the pediatric ward of a local hospital. Um, I tried going to talk to a priest at the Catholic church in my town. He wasn't, nobody was there. It's really a story of someone kind of wandering around trying to find something to feel hopeful about or feel a connection to. So this is from a, uh, passage during that period. None of my hearted attempts to return to life in the world had made me feel any better. Anxiety was becoming an overwhelming physical sensation, something rising from my gut, grappling at my ribcage, making it hard to breathe. Sometimes it was an involuntary clenching of my muscles, tightening and releasing over and over. I couldn't sleep for more than a few hours at a time. I woke in the dark at three or four in the morning and sat up with my heart pounding, my body revved up and panicked, flooded with adrenaline. Then I'd realized that nothing was going to happen. This was just the too early beginning of yet another day. I would lie down again and try to go to sleep, my mind churning with anguish, spinning its wheels through the various unlikely fixes for the unmoored condition I was in. Get a new job apply to graduate school, move back to the city, move to the country. Suicide began to press itself into this list of potential solutions. The powerful feeling of loss had turned into something else, a heavy, self-absorbed internal collapse, a constant thrumming of dread, a suffocating inwardness, a conviction that I was permanently cut off from the world and other people, marooned in the hell of my own consciousness. Living in time had become a torment. Each day felt endless, with no sense of forward motion, no anticipation of the future, no belief that I would ever feel better. Time was unbearable. Time needed to stop. One morning, I announced it would be better if I were dead. Wow. You know, that says so much. That passage you read says so much. And I think it, it helps us understand um, the hopelessness or the perceived hopelessness of the situation. And then in, in the hospital, when you're in that time in the hospital, uh, there was a it was decided uh, that you would undergo ECT uh, treatment. Is that correct? Yes. 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 And can you describe um, that for those of us, you know, briefly what, what ECT is and how it was done on you? Oh, sure. Yeah. So when I was in the hospital, I they decided that at first they would continue after I made this very minor um, suicide attempt at home. It was decided that I they would continue with the medication trial that I was on. And the assumption was that it just needed more time. And now that I would be in a safe environment, they would continue with that. But on my second day in the hospital, I made a suicide attempt that was very, very serious. 
Um, and that was the end of the medication trial. And they said, we now have to do ECT. And if you don't agree, we will get a judge's order. Oh, wow. <laughs> we will do ECT. Because my, my husband um, is now my ex-husband. Um, had seen, of course, once we were over the cuckoo's nest <laughs> and was yes. really terrified at the whole notion, just the mention of it was terrifying. Of course, what I had done was also terrifying. Um, and so I just said, of course, let's try this. I mean, I didn't really have any hope of, you know, of any other, I didn't have any other ideas. I I didn't really believe in anything at that point and anything working. I was really in a state of such profound hopelessness. So it, it began, and um, what can I say about it? It was it was scary. We signed a paper um, giving permission and saying you know this might not work and there are these various side effects, but. Um, it was quite straightforward. I mean, you go and you lie down on a gurney or a table and you go under anesthesia. Ah, and see. Yeah, and they put um, the, the electrodes on your forehead and I think that then they give you a kind of very short-acting anesthesia and give the electrical charge, which creates a seizure. Um this is a seizure to create a kind of attempt at a reset of your brain mm. is one way of thinking about it. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I do have a whole chapter on, on ECT in the book in which I talk about the early history of various convulsive therapies for mental illnesses, including schizophrenia. But ECT was found to work really well for melancholic depression, which was what my diagnosis was. Can um, I stop you there for a second, Mary? Yeah, sure. Throughout, throughout the book, uh, you make this distinction of melancholic depression uh, versus, you know, sometimes we see in the literature and popular press the term major depression or just depression. What What do you mean by melancholic depression what is that melancholic depression the word melancholia is a really ancient word and it comes from the ancient greek and it was a term that was given to something that was noticed by greek physicians before you know before the birth of christ during the hippocratic era and this was when the humors were still considered to be part of what doctors would use to diagnose people. So the humor of melancholia was, was caused by black bile in the body. Hmm. And it's this kind of prolonged state of fear, anxiety, hopelessness, the inability to sleep. Um, and so that diagnosis is extremely old. And this condition has been recognized in, in medicine for a very long time. But as it differs from major depression, major depression is a term that only came into being in 1980 with the third edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Psychiatry. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so melancholia is, in a sense, what serious, very serious depression was before the modern era. And I see. If you look up, for instance, the word melancholia in the New York Times archive, you will almost always find it attached to the story of a suicide. When melancholia made the news, it made the news because someone with melancholia committed suicide. Um, and this was, I was just looking it up in the New York Times, and most of those stories came from the 19th century and the early 20th century. And then the word kind of was, psychiatrists started using the term depression more generally, mm-hmm. and then it became officially major depression in 1980. So nowadays, in the, in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is called the DSM, it's a form of depression, melancholia. So my official diagnosis was major depression with melancholia. I see. And then there are other forms of major depression, like um, a mixed condition. Um, I can't remember at the moment what some of the others are. There's a more anxious type of depression. But melancholia... I, I I could read, I suppose, something else here. That'd be um, great, Mary. Okay. Let's see. There also used to be two terms in psychiatry. Endogenous was one of them. Endogenous depression means within the organism, which suggests that what was wrong with me was driven by disorder in my body and was more than a psychological and emotional reaction to my bereavement. This kind of depressive illness used to be called melancholia. So my depression, my diagnosis in the hospital was major depressive episode with melancholia. That that something has set set itself into the body, a kind of syndrome, with tremendously raised levels of stress hormones, with the inability to sleep with something lodged in your brain that refuses to let any light in. Mm -hmm. I'll just read a little passage about it here. Um, Biological psychiatrists understand melancholia as a severe mood disorder associated with dysfunctions along the body's hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, or the HPA axis. People with melancholia have very high levels of the stress hormone cortisol, a disordered sleep-wake cycle, slowed speech and movement, and diurnal swings in mood, which is darkest in the morning and improves slightly as the day goes on. They express an overwhelming sense of hopelessness, failure, and guilt. Sometimes they are psychotic. Very often, they are acutely suicidal. Mm. A recent textbook defines the illness as a recurrent, debilitating, pervasive brain disorder that alters mood, motor functions, thinking, cognition, perception, and many basic physiological processes. Postpartum and bipolar depressions can also take this form. The gloom is unremitting and efforts to cheer up the patient have no effect. Sufferers are trapped inside a totalizing negativity and it is hard to reach them with rational thinking. When they are very ill and delusional, 
psychotherapy is of no use at all. It might help them to know that their, mil- that their illness is unmistakably a real illness, not a manifestation of weakness, moral failure, or an inferior character, if they could only hear this truth. But usually they can't. Hmm. Mary, at some point you were discharged from the hospital after three or four months and uh, you did steps or you took steps uh, in your own recovery from that period forward. Can you describe to us what you were doing at that time? Um, I'm sorry, I'm trying to clear my throat. I came out of the hospital and returned to work uh, for a time. My job had been kind of, they had used hemp person to stand in for me and I went back to work uh, for a time while I tried to figure out how to once again um, find a way to move forward in my life which had now which had now begun to feel really broken that Mm -hmm. that this stay in the hospital the diagnosis my new life as a psychiatric patient now felt that I was a kind of damaged, um, I was afraid of, of this coming again, of, of the kind of bottomlessness that had opened up under me. I was still married. I returned to my marriage, which was really challenged because I had realized in the hospital that that was something that I also didn't have much faith in, in terms of feeling good about the future. So I was in therapy. I went back to work and I eventually applied to graduate school because I thought that reading literature was a way of attaching myself to something very meaningful. Mm. And it was something that I had studied in college and then not gone forward with. So I thought I would try and return to try and making a career as a teacher um, and scholar. So I was in therapy and that was the kind of grounding um, work in trying to hold my life together. I in had the book, a really good psychiatrist. And in the book, Mary, you, you talk about your Catholic upbringing in a big Irish uh, family. And you talk about, uh, you know, the sense of uh, not wanting to be self-disclosing in general, but even more particularly as it relates to what you went through with your depression and your suicide. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about that theme that runs through the book about shame and stigma and how you experienced it? Sure. Um, Yeah, my four grandparents were from Irish farm families, and all four of my grandparents emigrated in the 1920s. And so my parents were born in Philadelphia in 1930, um, and I grew up in the same neighborhood as my grandparents. Wow. So, and I went to the same Catholic school that my mother had gone to, and Hmm. my father's parents lived quite nearby. So we really grew up in a kind of um, 
very Irish Catholic environment, almost as if we nothing had changed. <laughs> you know that that <laughs> the same kind of um, the same kind of faith, the same kind of adherence to going to mass every Sunday and going to Catholic school and going to confession, um, and a, and a kind of internalized sense of surveillance even. Um, you had to constantly be careful that you were being good. <laughs> yeah. This is partly the Catholicism yeah. and also just partly the fact that <laughs> I was one of six children and the eldest girl oh, and wow. that I did not want to cause any trouble. I mean, certainly I was encouraged not to cause any trouble <laughs> for my parents. <laughs> so I think that... Uh, there was in a, there was partly a cultural feeling of of being um, having to be accountable all the time mm-hmm. and having to not cause any trouble and um, and I think possibly also just um, a temperamental or maybe it's my character that I have a kind of acute sense of um, responsibility. But I have read. I actually it was in one of Peter Kramer's books on depression that that um, I have a little footnote about it somewhere. That in Germany, one of the character types that they've observed to be associated with depression is this kind of character type: a person who feels extremely perfectionistic, very responsible, very you know, what's the word? I suppose just it's type A in a way. Um, yes. Well, that and feeling I think you of mentioned it, I you think have you to do everything right. I think you mentioned in the book uh, that with respect to character traits, the sense of I think you know you're you're more apt to feel empathy towards other people. Um, there is this sense of like a perfectionist kind of tendency. So th- th- those things added together kind of create this portrait uh, of a, a, a character trait and that you you could see that in yourself as a child, those qualities. Is that right? Yeah, I do. I, do. Yeah. I, I think that I noticed, well, I think, it, I think that in part, maybe it was always clear that I was going to become a person who would become a literature professor, but... Huh. In that, in that, if if people are not talking about their feelings around you, then you have to find a different way of being able to process emotions. Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. reading books and fiction and literature is a place where you can find um, a way of allowing that in your life, if you know what I mean. Yes. Were there um, books that were there any books that spoke to you particularly in that regard, Mary? I think but when I was a child we went to the library every week and brought home lots of books. So I read a lot and it was a way of having some solitude in a very large and busy household. Um but I think that by the time I was in high school I started reading poetry and I would, you know, write down poems and that was when there was lots of great music, folk music, and I would write down the the words of songs. And I think it was just a way, and by that time, I also should say that 
it's clear to me now looking back that I was having smallish depressive episodes by the time I was, mm. you know, in school. Yes. So I, I see that kind of behavior um, of writing down poems or reading poems as a way of trying to attend, I suppose, to my emotional life. Um, so, but I, I think that in terms of my family, because there had been a lot of hardship, obviously, and because of their Irish background, there wasn't really any, what would you call, emotional intelligence, I suppose, what we would call now. Yes. And also, I think there was a kind of stoicism that maybe you also re- recognize from your background, um, where it, it just wasn't done that people would talk about how they were feeling or their moods or whatever. It just Mer- it mm-hmm. seemed self-indulgent or calling and, attention to yourself, which was just not done. And what happened, I mean, you know, when you were hospitalized and had the suicide attempt, uh, your parents, your siblings, they became aware of it. And what was their reaction to all that? I think they were completely shocked and stunned. And I was not the person that they would ever have expected this to happen to. Yes. Um, I think I talk in the book about having a sort of double consciousness where as I grew older, and certainly by the time I was in high school and in college, I knew that I was, I felt troubled within myself. And Mm. now I recognize that I was troubled because I was having some depression, but that I was outwardly a very good student and I had friends and I was, I seemed like a successful person. Um, And so there would have been no expectation that something so catastrophic that I, of all people, would become suicidal. There, there, it was completely shocking. And of course, what happened to my child was completely shocking. And it, that would be shocking to anyone in any family. And I think my family was quite traumatized by it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the first grandchild everything seemed perfect in my life, you know, that, that everything was, it was such a surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, were you, but then were my, you of st- course, my being in therapy was another mm-hmm. first for my family. No one had ever been in therapy in my family. <laughs> and that was super weird, I think, for them. The fact that I, I now had this job of attending to my psychic life and discussing my thoughts and feelings with a doctor was, <laughs> super weird to my family. Were insights that you had gained in in therapy, Mary, uh, after releasing the hospital and, you know, going forward, would these be things you would discuss with any of your family members or would you just keep them private? I think that I talked to my parents about things because in the years that followed, I was um, separated from my husband and they were really not happy about that because, of course, they were Catholic. Yes. (laughs) And you were not supposed to get divorced. Nope. And so we did, I remember talking about that and, you know, talking about the marriage and 
various other things. And I, in fact, I think that the the result of that was that my parents now found that they had someone they could talk to for the first time. Wow. Because I was opening up to them and they could open up to me in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, so that it became a way of having honest conversations in my family, mm-hmm. which I kind of did more with my parents, with my mother especially, than with my siblings who were living further away, really. I mean, we were all grown-ups, or most of us were. So I wasn't you, seeing them so often. And you mentioned in the book, too, that I think at some point, it may have been during your hospitalization, that you discovered that other people in your family tree had struggled with depression. Yeah, the the, the great um, discovery that I made when I, I guess I should say here that I got my hospital record when I decided to write this book, and I mm-hmm. I rode away to the hospital, and I was really shocked. It's very surprising that after 30 years, they would have this record and make it available to me. They sent it wow. to me, a copy of it. So that was really one of the great things that allowed me to go back to that time and see it so clearly because it was all written down in the hospital record and I got a really extraordinarily clear sense of what my treatment was and and what I was like when I was so ill because I, I would have no memory of that otherwise. It's sort of like your older self looking back on your younger self. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 amazing. And I did have I had some journals and I had a notebook that I kept in the hospital at at the suggestion of my psychiatrist in the hospital when I was undergoing ECT, which I had for 6 weeks. I had a lot of uh ECT treatments because it was not really working until suddenly it worked. But um he suggested because it causes amnesia after a while, you have the loss of short-term memory. And he suggested, because my husband would come and visit me on the visiting nights, which were like only two nights a week, I think. And I wouldn't be able to remember what happened that day to, to just uh, tell him about my yes. day. And the doctor suggested that I keep a notebook. And I started writing things down in the hospital because, of course, there's lots and lots of time when there's not much to do. And that became a great resource as well for returning to this period and being able mm-hmm. to kind of look at it and see myself in that time. And it is exactly like an older self looking at a younger self and also a self that had a lot more compassion. I had so much more compassion for myself looking back than I had for myself at the time. If you can know what I mean. Yes, I know what you mean, Mary. And, you know, I have to say, I think you described this in in the book, that it took you a long time to write the book, but the, the, the thought or the impulse to write it persisted in you. Why did you finally decide to write it? I think that... um I I was supposed to be, you know, as an academic, I was I'm sort of academic, but as an adjunct, I was not on a tenure track. So I did not have to write a tenure book. And everyone around me is, of course, writing books. My friends are writers and 
my husband is a writer. My husband is an academic writer who's just finished his seventh book. And I was kind of really blocked. And I always knew that this was something that I wanted to write about. But because of the privacy issue, I couldn't really bring myself to expose myself in the way that would be necessary to tell the story that I tell in this book. And that's the real reason that I never got around to it earlier. Uh, that um, makes sense. Well, well, we're all glad you got you got around to it, <laughs> yeah, very and, much so. And it's a fantastic book. Um, I'm sorry, you wanted to complete your thought, Mary. Oh, no, no. It's just that finally I, I realized that I this was the book that I needed to write. And I... I finally just decided I would write it for myself, even if it would never be published, because mm-hmm. I wanted to kind of process this experience, which had felt always like it was troubling to me that, that somehow I had never regained something that was lost when I had this crisis in my life. I, I guess I was suffering from a lingering sense of failure, you might say. Mm-hmm. Um, because in my life, I'm surrounded by a lot of very successful people, yes. and um, and I was troubled by it. And I thought I just wanted to go back and look at this and see if I can write this book because I I know that I have something to say about this experience, mm-hmm. and um, that was why it never really left me this desire to do it. And finally, I just realized, go ahead and just do it. And then you can decide whether to try and publish it or not. And then you did and, decide to do it. And, and then I did. There was Once there was so much work involved, I thought, you know, I might as well try and publish it. And the longer I worked on it, the more I got used to, I was, I guess, kind of inured to the feeling of exposure. Yes. And um, I'm kind of nearing the end of my teaching career, and I thought, at this point, do I really care? Mm-hmm. Who knows this about me? It's not so scandalous. You know, it's not it's not so criminal. You know, I think that there's a lot of guilt and shame associated with suicide and mm. with being suicidal. And um but as I said, when when you look back and you see the suffering involved and you see the illness so clearly, which is what I was able to do when I looked back and and I looked at the record and I looked at my notes and I learned about the illness. I thought that there's nothing shameful here. Yeah. No. Um, and so that's that that comes out loud and clear, but it it takes a, a long time to come to that very visceral sense, you know, that, that truth that uh, there's nothing to be ashamed of here. It, 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 we wish it were so simple that someone could just say that and we would believe it, but it takes so much longer to come to that uh, by oneself. And I want to say, too, uh, I want to let people know who are listening, you had a second child, a son, and uh, there's one point in the book, uh, a powerful moment in the book, where you and your second husband visit your daughter's grave, and you bring your new son with you. Uh, why did you do that, and what did it mean to you? Can you just tell us? <clears throat> um, there's a chapter in the book about 
mourning and melancholia, um, I knew when I wrote the book that I wanted to address Freud's essay, famous essay called Mourning and Melancholia. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that I needed to do after I got out of the hospital was to mourn for my daughter because that had been kind of interrupted by this descent into a very, very severe and at times psychotic depression. Um, And so part of the work of recovering was also coming to terms with that loss. And eventually I, and once my husband and I got divorced, I needed to find a place to lay her to rest. We had had her cremated and he and I had been in college in Vermont and there was an old cemetery there where I decided to buy a small grave and headstone and I buried her ashes there. Um, And that was really meaningful and I put a little um, quote on her grave from T.S. Eliot's poem, Marina. So it was that cemetery, and that that was, of course, before I met my second husband. Um, But that was the cemetery that we visited when my son Luke was a baby because my husband Jim, my current husband, and I were spending time in Vermont, and we were driving by this cemetery where Anna had been laid to rest. And so... We didn't often go over to that side of the state, and because we were there, we we went to visit the grave. Mm. And Luke was a baby, and um, I went into the cemetery and to the stone, and I then noticed that Jim had come up and was standing next to me holding Luke. And um, it was just this moment of a really profound sense of the past and the present being together at the same time. Um, and it was very beautiful in a way that my husband wanted our baby to see the grave of his, of his sister. Yes. Um, it was a very generous and beautiful thing that he he kind of respected the mm. significance of it. Mm-hmm. So that's just a moment towards the end of the book. Um, yeah, you know, I think you say in the book, too, that um, you you express a profound gratefulness uh, that you didn't succeed in taking your life. Otherwise, oh, your gosh. son Luke would yeah. never have been born. I mean, that's just one aspect of being grateful that that didn't happen. Exactly. You talk about that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I think that anyone who has survived a suicide attempt feels this incredibly profound good fortune to have been unsuccessful. Yes. <laughs> you know, yes. I think that my entire life, I mean, I, I think mm-hmm. it would have been so devastating for my family. They probably, you know, would never have recovered. Certainly, it's something they would have no, lived with the rest no. of their lives. Your parents, yeah, and your that's, that's the whole problem with. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's one of the things that I try to draw attention to in this book is that the danger of severe depressive illness is precisely suicide. 
and how much damage that leaves behind that I was fortunately able to not have to wreak that kind of grief on my survivors. In addition, of course, to getting to have my own life, you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a very, very serious thing, this illness. And I'm really happy that you're bringing attention to it and that you well, yourself have survived whatever yes. you know, suffering that you've gone through. Well, you know, it's, um, it's interesting. I, I, I think that one of the things I was struck uh, about your book, what struck me, was this search for meaning and understanding of uh, your own personal journey, but then the more universal uh, um experience of depression you know for millions and millions of, of people people who suffer and struggle and i thought you gave a very um articulate voice to that struggle and mary i wanted to conclude i mean I, I, you know with where you are today and what do you do to keep your depression or is it fair to say sometimes you still feel a little depressed or not at all and and um, also, what do you do that's helpful to you? Um, that's a good question. <laughs> I, I, you know, it's funny because as we speak, we are in our, I mean, what, eight or nine weeks into the lockdown in the mm-hmm. coronavirus pandemic. Yes. And I keep expecting depression to set in mm-hmm. it's because that is a very serious thing that's happening to people yes. as we feel trapped and we don't know what the future is is holding and so many people have lost their jobs and those are the people that I really worry about but in general and and I guess I should finish that thought by saying I haven't fallen into a serious depression and I hope that won't happen yes every day I go out for a very long walk and I've been going to Central Park and the spring has not cared about the coronavirus. Yeah. The spring has been happening, and it's been very beautiful. You um, actually wrote an uh, you wrote an article about spring uh, last year in the New York Times. I read that. Um, why did you yes, write that article? About, well, in my book, the period that I wrote um, that I went through when I became suicidal was from December to March. That was the period from the death of my daughter to my entry into the hospital. So as I became more and more suicidal, the spring was coming. And I thought, if I make it to spring, it'll be okay. Uh, It'll be okay. And and of course, I, I did not feel okay. And I attempted suicide on the second day of spring. Wow. So... I I ended up thinking a lot about that when I when it became clear to me in reading later on that that spring is a time when suicide is at its highest and it's not it's not a significantly higher but it's it's been statistically notable that people I and I think it is because of the feeling of being perhaps left behind when the energies of the year really shift and the sun comes out and people go outside and 
and those who are left behind feeling terrible perhaps then feel worse. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I do. So I was, that I remember was what myself, that article was about. I remember being with my family uh, 20 years ago when I was first uh, diagnosed with major depression and we were in uh, the park in Disney World and I was sitting um, on a bench and watching my wife and small ch- child, my daughter was small at the time, and seeing all the happy people around me and feeling utter desolation, no happiness, no joy. Um, and I felt guilty about it. I felt, what kind of person am I not to share in the happiness and joy of my own family and, and or even to take part in life? Um, but, you know, that was one aspect of my depression, you know, not feeling engaged in life, not fe- not feeling any joy in life. And perhaps, you know, for many people, including myself, that can be one of the worst aspects of, of depression. Oh, absolutely. We all live for that. We all live to not just survive life, but to enjoy life. And that's something and to that feel alive. Yes, to feel alive, and that's something that de- depression, especially when it's untreated, uh, you know, can can take that can take that from us, you know. And I got to say, Mary, I just got so much out of your book, and I, I'm going to recommend it to, to everybody. Uh, and thanks for taking the time today to talk. I really appreciate it, Dan, and I. Hope we can talk again sometime. Yes, me too. Uh, I've been speaking with Mary Cregan, author of the book, The Scar, A Personal History of Depression and Recovery. 